health can become a new purpose, which is totally appropriate if you're sick. But I mean, our life is for something and health is a foundation of that. When people really get obsessed with health, usually they end up not being that healthy. It is irrational to hope for a better world if the human nature that you demonstrate is incompatible with that better world. And that's where despair comes from. So I guess the choice then starts in our own lives. What way am I ready to be more in service to life? Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, I am so excited about today's episode. It diverges from a lot of the typical episodes on this show. It's definitely new waters, new territory for me, at least when it comes to airing episodes. I actually personally love talking about things like philosophy and culture and the nature of the universe and reality and viewpoints. And so we touch on a lot of hot topics today. I hope it's not too controversial. In my personal opinion, I don't actually really know why anything should be controversial. I personally feel like we should be able to just talk about whatever and ask whatever questions, because all that we're really doing in conversation is contemplating the nature of reality, seeking truth. So needless to say, I will be super curious to hear what all of you guys think. Please let me know in my Facebook group. You can join IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Tell me what you think in the pin post. And also by doing so, you will be entered into my weekly giveaway. You can also find another giveaway on my Instagram. Check out the Friday announcement post there and comment something that resonated with you or something that you think about the episode to enter to win something that I love. These show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Charles Eisenstein. That is C-H-A-R-L-E-S-E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, 
skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Charles Eisenstein. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited and honored about the conversation that I'm about to have. So a little backstory on this conversation. I was trying to remember when it was that I first read The Yoga of Eating. I think it was probably around 2014 or so. And that was my first exposure to the work of Charles Eisenstein. And that book, as a lot of you guys know, (laughs) I exist in a world of trying to figure out the correct diet for everybody and all of these different viewpoints. And reading that book was just so enlightening and just a beautiful nuanced perspective. And I started recommending it to anybody and everybody and talking about it on the intermittent fasting podcast all the time. And then in 2018, I reached out to the author, Charles, and asked if he would be down <laughs> with me recording the audiobook for it. And he was so kind and open to it, which was amazing. And we actually, I totally forgot about this until now, he actually made some updates to the book to make it more relevant with his current thoughts at the time. So we released that in 2018. That was before the launch of this show. And then having launched this show a few years ago, I knew I wanted to have Charles back on. And I had reached out to his one of his assistants. We just talked before this, and I don't think she was still with him at the time. So it hadn't manifested. And then Jean Valacara, who you guys might have heard on the show randomly reached out to me and said that I just had to have Charles Eisenstein on the show because he said it was basically one of the most profound conversations he had ever had. So that was meant to be. I was so excited and so thrilled. And then I went even deeper into Charles's work because the yoga of eating is not 
like his one book. He has so many books. He has The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics. I ended up reading since then Climate and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And he has The Coronation coming out. Well, it's not out yet. It comes out in three days. So congrats in advance on that. And that's a collection of essays surrounding his thoughts on the zeitgeist with the pandemic. That was a lengthy intro, but I am just, I mean, I'm a little bit overwhelmed because there's so many things I want to discuss and I have no idea where this conversation is going to go. But Charles, I cannot thank you enough for your work and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Melanie. Such a kind introduction. Yeah, I'm ready to talk. I'm just so excited. Okay. So to start things off, so I've read, you know, quite a few of your books and you will mention little pieces of your life, but the majority of it is normally your thoughts on culture and society and viewpoints and mindset. So I'm really curious, like, have you always had a philosopher mind? Were you always deeply contemplating things? Like how much have your views changed over the years? And just what is, what is that like in your head? Yeah, I've always been a thoughtful person, I guess. I was a a pensive child, you know, I guess I do think about things a lot, which I'm not always sure if more intellectualism is really what the world needs right now, but I don't know. That's kind of what I, what I am. And uh, yeah, even, you know, even like the yoga of eating book that I, I I briefly tried to become a yoga teacher and I don't think I was an especially good yoga teacher, but I loved thinking about like yogic philosophy and like, how does that apply to food really if it's not just a bunch of rules? And so I just, whenever I did, I ended up being philosophical about it. You know, sometimes that can be a little bit of the ivory tower phenomenon where you're so interested in ideas that you don't engage as much with the world, with the body, with society, you know, with other human beings. But I've always also gotten involved or embroiled in public issues, kind of, well, I don't know, that's a whole other story, but I became controversial, let's say that, like much to my astonishment. I migrated from being completely off the radar and beneath the notice of the mainstream to like this controversial person during the pandemic, not because I necessarily changed my beliefs in anything, but the times changed, I guess. So anyway... Here I am. So you said you were trying out being a yoga teacher and thinking about how it applied to food. So what is the central practice of the yoga of eating? So like, what was the central tenet you found from yoga that applied to food and how people approach it? Yeah, it's about really intimacy and trust with with the body. You know, the, the dilemma was, as I began researching diet. I kind of went from one to another to another, each dietary philosophy seemingly sound, compelling even on its own terms, but contradicting the other ones. And I thought, well, there must be some overarching principles of diet that unify all these different approaches. But I never could find any. Even going into some of the intricacies of metabolic typing, like it got so intricate that at some point, and and even there, the authorities like these really nerdy functional medicine doctors and so forth, like even they disagreed with each other. And and I'm like, it can't be that hard. So maybe my own body could guide me toward what is healthy and what isn't. And what does that guidance look like? Well, it's about the yes and the no, pleasure and discomfort. And my hypothesis was that 
the more attuned one becomes to the effect of a food on the body, which starts with the taste and continues on through the whole experience of it, the more accurate the body's guidance will be. And eventually, pleasure and health will come into alignment. And the things that are good for you will taste good. The things that are bad for you will taste bad. And actually, like that actually happened to me. Of all my books, that's the one that I probably live the most, live with the most integrity. I genuinely like require no willpower whatsoever to stay away from the birthday cake, you know, or the packaged cookies or ice cream. I mean, sometimes I even like try to force myself to eat it for social reasons, but I'm like, yuck, like this doesn't feel good. doesn't taste good. Because really, like the, the, the main cause of dietary ill health isn't that people don't know. It's that they know better, but they eat it anyway. So anyway, that's a little bit of, the, of that book. So on this show, I've had a laundry list of really amazing guests in the diet sphere, and it will be people on, you know, complete opposite sides of the spectrum. And so I get, I get a lot of overwhelmed listeners a lot, a little bit exacerbated because, you know, things are posited as truth that are just completely opposite. So a thought of mine has always been that if there was one right diet, I think we probably would have found it by now because I think everybody would be doing it and it would be working. And, and then another thing is like the right diet for what, for whom, for you. And so there's this assumption of uh, a whole bunch of standardized use out there. And that is basically a men- a, an industrial mentality that we see rife within our entire healthcare system today. Like this, this generic prescribing based on statistics and standardized assumptions about what everybody should do. Like that's what you, what is required to have medicine at industrial scale that's not based on an individual unique relationship between the person and their healer. And, and like that whole mindset is really, you know, none, none of the pandemic stuff would have happened if it weren't for that mindset. Our whole system is built around that. And, and if we think in terms of what is the revolution really about, starting with the revolution in health, beyond any prescription that applies to everyone, it's really about reasserting sovereignty over our own health which again is not a matter of an individual, like I can heal myself, I can do it all myself, but it is about unique relationships. We put things into categories and there's like us and the other, and we like to ascribe like a totality of truth to these black and white statements. So I think there's something, like another reason I don't like having these really intense dietary philosophies that we're trying to push on people is that I find it to be very ego-based, like saying that because this works for me, it necessarily works for everybody. Like I just find that to be really arrogant. So what is the difference or how do you define the line between, so knowing something that works for you and not opposing it on others versus knowing it works for you and almost being selfish in a way because it works for you. Basically, I really struggle (laughs) with how we escape the ego. So how does the ego come into play with all of this, like others and ourselves and knowing what's right and truth? That's a big question. I don't usually use that particular lens. 
of what's coming from ego and what isn't, it can be useful sometimes. But really, if it's a matter of another person, now I'm not really a practitioner, but sometimes, uh, you know, someone will have a health problem. And I find that when I tune into them and pretend, and the pretense becomes true, that I can know something of what it is like to be them. Like then sometimes I just like get this intuitive hit that, that, oh, you know, you need to eat red meat <laughs> or, you know, you drink burdock tea or something like that, that it's not necessarily based on any of my received knowledge, but it is a truth of the moment in that relationship. So I guess like this, this tuning into another person to do that for real, you have to let go of your ideas about the other person, your judgments about them and therefore about yourself. And so there's like a letting go in that process. Same thing, you know, we could be talking about food or diet or, or something like that, but it could also be like, what does, what is true for this person right now? If, if we're, you know, maybe in an advising relationship or it's just a friend who's, who's encountering some kind of challenge, you know, we have all of these teachings and principles and cliches and, and standardized advice, standardized understandings of human nature and what to do, say, if you are in an abusive relationship. But every single relationship is unique. Every moment is unique. And what may be sound advice in one situation may not be exactly right in another situation. Like, you know, say you, you, your friend is in an abusive relationship maybe 95% of the time, the right advice is you got to get out of there. You got to stand up to him. You've got to take him to court. You have to get a restraining order. You have to do X, Y, and Z. But if you ignore the particulars of the situation, what it's like to be her, what the, the family situation is, what the grandparents, the children, et cetera, if you ignore all of that, then you're speaking from dogma and not in the immediate truth of that moment in that relationship. So the same is the same goes for any kind of health practice too. You know, like like I one of the, one of the things I've taken up is uh, cold water immersion. I'm sure you and many people on your sh show are well aware of this. And I've got, you know, lots of reasons why I think that it is good for you to do that. But I could also build a case why it's bad to do that. I know practitioners who think it's terrible. And, and in Chinese medicine, it might be questionable to, to, to let that amount of cold, you know, in, deep into the body. I know an a alternative practitioner, a chiropractor who I highly respect, who says it'll prematurely age you. You know, don't do it. So who am I going to believe here? Maybe both are right for some people. Maybe there's some deeper understanding that says it's good for X, Y, and Z people and not good for A, B, and C people. You know, even in my day-to-day, -day, like, I don't do it every day. You know, I just got over a little bit of COVID. And when I'm kind of in a fever state, I'm, I'm like, no way. Because then I'm fighting my body. But it's not, like, I can, I can dress it up in because because, because, and that's why I don't do it. But that isn't the reason. 
The reason is that I tune into my body and preemptively put myself in that cold water tub and and feel it in advance. And, and it's like anticipating eating that cookie, you know? And how am I going to feel? And, and as I develop sensitivity over time, then I have an unerring guide in my choices, whether it's regarding health or something else. Not that I always listen to that guide. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. So I've had Wim Hof on the show. I'm a huge fan of cold exposure. I actually haven't done the water version. I do cryotherapy, but it's really interesting because... I will have conversations with people about it a lot. Like I can think of two recent conversations I had. And I mean, this is something you talk about a lot, like the role of science versus religion and spirituality, but there's not as many quote scientific studies for cold yet as there is for something like heat exposure, sauna. I'll have conversations with people and they'll say like, well, there's not really any scientific literature. And really all I can say is, Yes, but I know how it makes me feel, which does feel very intuitive. I'm really fascinated. You were talking about how the yoga beating really manifests in your life and you you don't, you know, crave these foods that probably would not make you feel well. So I I've been following a whole foods diet for about a decade, probably longer. I don't have any problems really with avoiding the foods that I don't think will work for me, like the processed foods, the cake, the birthday cake, like you said. However, (laughs) I know that if I were to have it, it would taste fantastic. And on the few experiences when I've tried this, it did. And it's confusing to me because 
I feel like my body should at this point be super intuitive, but I know that there are things I could enjoy that would feel really good. And I don't think they would bring goodness to my life. So what's happening there? Well, how about hit a crack? Would that make you feel good? Yeah, probably. (laughs) Yeah, probably. So especially if you only pay attention to the immediate feeling. Same thing with that slice of birthday cake. Although I don't know, maybe it actually is something your body needs for some reason. But for what I'm describing to work, you have to incorporate the full experience of it, not just the pleasure in your mouth that you might feel when you first eat it, but the entire thing. So which which could be an experience that, that goes on for hours. If you really tune in, you can feel the presence, like the energetic signature of all the food you ate that's still in your system right now. Like I can tune in right now and... If I really pay attention, I can feel like I made a French toast with this awesome sourdough. Like we have this like gluten-free sourdough culture that we've been passing around. Anyway, I made French toast out of that for Carrie and me. And like, I can feel that, feel it in my body still. So it's like the example I give, I don't think it's in the yoga of eating, but it's in, um, I wrote another booklet about diet or I have an online course on it or something, but it's like, Imagine you had some kind of neuropathy in your hand so that every time you touch a hot stove, you don't feel anything. So you touch it and, oh, that's cool. Look at that steam coming off my hand, you know. You don't feel the pain right away, but hours and hours later, maybe then like you feel some kind of ache going up your arm, but you don't associate that with touching the stove. Then you're never going to know that touching a hot stove is bad for you. You can only know by using your senses. So if you distract your attention, and this is what a lot of people do, they'll they'll eat, you know, a terrible meal. And when the discomfort lands, could be a few minutes later, they start getting thirsty, they have indigestion, they feel crappy an hour later, two hours later, they're already onto something else. They're they're, you know, watching Netflix or it could even be a few minutes after they eat the whole box of cookies. They're distracting themselves from the discomfort by promising themselves they're never going to do it again and and running the story about how they're going to turn over a new leaf. So so really for, for this practice to work, you have to feel the entirety of an experience. So maybe if you ate that cake, you know, and maybe it, it is delicious initially because you have never incorporated into that taste the aftermath of it. It's like the first time I took a plant medicine I work with, iboga. It's bitter and stuff, but I could easily get it down. You know, I could, I could have several mouthfuls of it, of this root bark. But when that resulted in hours and hours of intense nausea and vomiting, the next time I tried it, I could not get that stuff down. It was repulsive. Because I had had that, I had now an association. That's how the power of attention can create a body wisdom that can guide pretty much any choice in life. I hadn't thought about this until now, but I think one of the reasons, because I practice fasting every day, and one of the nice things about it is you do feel the lingering effects of the meal because you're not moving on to the next meal. So you're really feeling the, you know, what came from that. And so it's very telling. Do you think there's a difference, though, between 
So like the cake example, one could argue that it's not actually food. Like it's a process concoction that is maybe a lie. And is it possible that maybe we can't be intuitive with it because it's a trick? I think that the that our ability is practically unlimited to tune into whether something's good or bad for us. I mean, you know, like people who do muscle testing and stuff take advantage of this unconscious knowledge. So yeah, like a lot of processed food attempts to trick the body by making by like making it seem like food, you know, or seem like something nutritious, but actually it's, you know, MSG instead of the rich amino acids that you really need. And, and if you don't pay close attention, then you can be tricked. But the more you develop awareness, the harder you are to trick. Well, actually, in support of that, the book I was reading last night, Mark, how do you say his last name? Schatzker, I think. He wrote a book called The Dorito Effect, but his new book is called The End of Craving. And he was talking about experiments they've done on mice that you know can taste sweet or can't taste sweet, or on the flip side, mice that taste drinks that are artificially sweetened, but then may or may not have a caloric value to them. And he had a whole section about how the body ultimately reacts to, like it goes beyond our perception of taste into what is actually in the drink. So like, so mice that can't taste sweet will actually end up preferring sugar water, even though they can't taste it, but their bodies know there's something in it. Or on the flip side, like mice that can taste sweet. And if they have like multiple artificially sweetened beverages, they will prefer the one that actually has stuff in it. So there's definitely an intuition there. Although that's beyond the conscious sensing aspect. That's like a deeper understanding. Yeah. But it's really just paying attention to the body's revulsion or welcome of something. So it's not so different than what the mice are doing. So question for you, do you eat in silence? No, not usually. You talk about the interesting concept of how we make meals social, but then we're splitting our attention. We're not fully enjoying the food and we're not fully enjoying the person's company. Yeah. You know, I wrote that book in 2002. So have your thoughts changed on that a little bit? I'm a little less hardcore than I was. Yeah. Did you ever go through a point where you tried that? No, I kind of thought it was like I had it as this like, you know, ideal but but I never, it was it was inhuman actually, like and who and, and and also is health even the most important thing? No, it isn't. I mean, it is a means to everything, but it should not become an end in itself. And I saw this. I've seen this happen in people, and in even a bit in myself at a time. Say, if you are at a loss for purpose and meaning in your life then health can become a new purpose and and a sense of give it can confer a sense of identity and meaning it becomes a goal which is totally appropriate if you're sick but once you are reasonably healthy and you have enough life force to devote to other things then it's kind of pathological to be obsessing about your health all the time yeah, we know people like this who are just health nuts, we call them. And there's like, like, why, you know, is your goal to go to your grave healthy? I mean, our life is for something and health is, is a foundation of that. 
but when people and 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 ironically the, when people really get obsessed with health usually they end up not even being that healthy there's always one thing after another after another that they meet with yet more and more elaborate and extreme practices but they are not necessarily any healthier than like you know the plumber down the street who's like eating donuts and coffee for breakfast and yeah i mean he's got some complaints too but as far as his ability to basically enjoy life not necessarily any worse than some of the the health obsessed who often go from one thing to another to another each one is is like the the magic key and then realizing how deluded they were and moving on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So this isn't to say that, that like I, I actually respect very much biohacking and the rejection of our culture's normalization of ill health. Like we are supposed to be vital and vibrant. And if you are not vital and vibrant, then at least part of your attention maybe should be on how to recover that birthright. But Never let it become an end in and of itself that becomes your new purpose for, for living. Because once you set it up as your purpose for living, then you'll actually be invested psychologically in imperfect health in order to justify your existence. Because you need to be healing from something in order to know what to do with your life. And then when you do find a genuine purpose of service to something beyond yourself, service to life, service to beauty, creativity, art, music, like some passion, something that you want to do in the world. Very often health problems go away when you are focused on creativity and service. And you realize that there's an awful lot more to health than merely the mechanics of the body and what goes in and what goes out. I cannot agree more. That resonates with me so much. My own journey started with, well, my own journey, the way it manifests now with like these shows and my book and things like that is I had a, a slew of health issues and it became this desperate search to just fix myself and, and find answers. And that was what, you know, started all of this work. But now it's more about, I'm so curious. And so I love like learning all of these different perspectives and things that might help people and just help giving people exposure to a vast array of opinions and information so they can find what works for them. So now it's more about like curiosity and spreading information rather than finding the solution. That was actually a really dark place to exist in. And I remember thinking like, I can't wait till the day that I never think about health again. <laughs> like, yeah. So, which actually that ties into a larger topic, which we've danced around a bit and touched on, but the concept of open-mindedness. And so I'm so happy to hear you write about this and a lot of your books, well, open-mindedness and defensiveness and one of my biggest epiphanies of recent times is that, at least for me, the concept of feeling defensive, whenever that happens to me, I think, what am I scared of here? Or what am I, well, I know you're saying you don't really look at things through the terms of ego, but I'll think like, what is my ego hurt by? Or like, what in me is having this response? And I found it to be such a helpful practice, especially being really immersed in social media and having a Facebook community and all of that. So what are your thoughts on 
open-mindedness, defensiveness, how that is manifesting in today's culture. And like, if you're open-minded though, do you have to be open-minded to people who are not open-minded? What are your thoughts on this whole topic? Pretty much everybody thinks that they're open-minded. Really? Yeah. It's like, like, you know, Garrison Keillor, like the town where everybody's children are above average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you weren't open-minded, would you even know it? I'm thinking, wow. Yeah. So here's one, one, one thing that I, that I, that is helpful to, to me sometimes engaging people who vehemently disagree with my opinions. It's that a belief is not some isolated intellectual construct that is independent of one's body, one's relationships, one's life, one's spiritual state of being, but it is part of a holistic state of being which means that people do not change their beliefs unless a, a deeper change is also happening to them. And if they're, same is true of diet, actually. Diet is also part of a state of being. And that's why you see if somebody, say, leaves a toxic relationship, all of a sudden their diet might completely change because now they're no longer attracted to the foods that were helping them cope with and maintain that relationship. So beliefs are the same. A certain set of beliefs will help you cope with, say you have a job that doesn't resonate with you, that that you are having to force yourself to get up and go to work, that you have ethical contradictions about, and, and it's just like, you just don't resonate with it. You might develop some beliefs that validate and justify that job. And when the job changes, then those beliefs are no longer necessary or relevant. So like today, you know, it's not random. Say if we talk about various COVID controversies, it's not random who is compliant and who is rebellious. Let's say avoiding trigger words here. The you know compliance generally goes along with a certain position in society, with a certain kind of education, like it's kind of part of a whole personality. And that's why it's very hard to change anyone's mind by confronting them with evidence and, and logic to the contrary. They will, they will resist it because it's not time for their belief to change because it is in resonance with everything else about them. It's a, it's a state of being. And, and you're not going to get very far by assaulting it, assaulting that belief. In fact, they will take it as an assault on them. And in a sense, it is. If a belief is part of a whole identity, then, and, and, and part of their sense of belonging, I mean, that's another thing. Like, opinions are one of the ways that we establish in-group membership in society. We signal the correct virtues. We conform to the appropriate rituals and taboos. We voice acceptable opinions. And, you know, then we are accepted as, as a worthy, valid, legitimate member of society. It has nothing to do with logic. People can believe the most ridiculous, insane things if that's what's required to fit in. And they then become unconscious of the true motivation, which is fitting in, and have every indication of sincerity, and they themselves believe that they believe what they believe. 
But when social conditions change and the belief that had ensured you would be the popular kid now is going to make you into the weird kid, oh boy, then any little argument or persuasion or piece of evidence will change your mind and you will think that you are open-minded because look, I encountered new evidence and I changed my mind, unaware that the real reason you changed your mind was to fit in. And this sounds like you know a pretty cynical view of human nature, but I think if we understand it, then and we become conscious of these hidden motivators of our beliefs, then we become less vulnerable to manipulation. And that's really important today because in the last couple of years, we've seen like what ridiculous things society, the public is willing to do when they're manipulated. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support 
anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. I think one of the things that really stuck with me that I learned, and again, it was a scientific example, but it really, really made me realize how much I really don't know anything. And it's looking at the split brain patient studies where people's hemispheres of their brains don't connect. And so like the language part of their brain doesn't connect with like what they're seeing. And so they'll, and I'm bastardizing what these experiments were, but basically they'll show people, they'll like show people things and only show it to one side of the brain. And then like the language side of the brain will just make up stories about what they saw. And once I read that, I was like, okay, I literally know nothing. Like literally my, my brain could just be making up a story and I just have no idea, which has been really freeing because I'm not really wedded to like, what are your thoughts on? Cause you're talking about, you know, how hard it is to change people's minds. I really don't mind. I don't really care what people think. Like, I don't really want to change people's minds. And I don't know if that's because maybe I'm too exhausted at the thought of it, or if I really just don't care. Well, you know, there's there's a, a useful function in changing people's minds. When they are ready to change, then they often need some kind of external nudge to do so. So so this, you know, in, in personal relationships, you might encounter this too. Somebody is finally ready to see something they had not been ready to see. So that happens. So it's not, you know, useless, but the salvation of our planet and our society will not be that somebody finally is so eloquent and persuasive that all of the rational people out there will admit the error of their ways and accept a new belief. That's not how it's going to happen. And actually, that ties into a really big question. I mean, to say the concept of the salvation of the planet assumes that something's wrong. So what was the initial or what is the purpose of humanity and what would salvation look like? I know you have a story of separation and interbeing. Is that it? My own small opinion is that the purpose of humanity is to participate in the unfolding of life and beauty in the cosmos and to devote our gifts toward that unfolding, to serve life and beauty on earth. Basically, that's, that's what our purpose is. Yeah, it's, it's something that we are awakening to 
as a civilization, where for a long time, we understood our purpose to be to dominate and conquer nature. But that is no longer appealing to most of us. We want to do something else with our lives. But we still live in systems that encode the old purpose, which is one reason why many of us are so uncomfortable in the systems and don't even really want to get ahead in the system. Maybe it would be, you know, convenient to have lots of money and status, but something in us just is half-hearted about doing what's required to be a success. So we try to subsist in the margins and build, build a new society that embodies the values of life and beauty. And now I really wish I had read A Sense of Humanity, because maybe you talk about this more at length in that book. Have certain cultures opted out of this system that is in conflict to the purpose of humanity that you just spoke about? So like indigenous cultures, Native Americans? I mean, that's, that's a tricky question. You know, all of the ills of modern society are visible in some rudimentary form, at least, in traditional hunter-gatherer societies, primitive societies. And they were at least in embryonic form in those societies and then blossomed into human nature when conditions were right, when, when technology and agriculture, domestication and so forth were developed. So I, I can't say that the delusions of modernity all of a sudden appeared ex nihilo in the West. But we could definitely say that many other societies were not nearly so intoxicated with the mythology, with the story of separation, and lived in much more awareness of their interconnection, of their, of their interbeing with the rest of life and, and the universe, and, and understood themselves as part of a much bigger intelligence and a much bigger purpose and so forth. So I think that we therefore can learn a lot from indigenous cultures, from also the wisdom lineages of our own cultures, where this knowledge was preserved. Like the, the, the seeds of the future of a more beautiful world exist in the past and have been carried into the present through various means, including the indigenous that did not fully succumb to modernity and, and possess some of the knowledge of how to be human that has been lost. What's really ironic about it is just like if I see it in my head as this visual, I see those cultures that either, well, I guess they didn't consciously opt out. They just didn't join modernity. It's really hard to generalize. The, the, the foundation of modernity is agriculture. And agriculture started pretty much everywhere on earth where it could start where there were easily domesticable plants and animals. It started independently in more than one place. It wasn't like it started in one place and then spread everywhere else. It started independently in India, China, the Middle East, North America, South America, I think Sub-Saharan Saharan Africa as well. And everywhere, once it got started, then it expanded and drew more and more hunter-gatherers into their empires. But the fact that it started independently in many places, to me, bespeaks a kind of inevitability. Like it was a stage that humanity was destined to go through. And we have narrated that as 
an ascent. That's why I titled the book The Ascent of Humanity. It's kind of ironic, though. But we narrated that as, as progress, as improvement, and believed that our continued improvement, our destiny would be to bring all of reality under control, to domesticate everything, to impose order onto chaos, to, to conquer the wild, even in the body. And so this feeds, this, this informs a lot of what modern medicine tries to do, where it sees an advance as a greater imposition of control onto the micro level, onto the molecular level, the genetic level. If we can control body processes with precision, then we will have perfect health. It's, so it's the same basic mindset that started with, with agriculture. And as I said before, it's kind of reached its limit. There, therefore, we face a, a revolution, a turning of the age, or at least the possibility of one, where we look to another destiny and another arc of progress that's no longer about more and more control, but instead is about recognizing and trusting the intelligence in the body, in all things, and seeking to ally ourselves with that intelligence. With, with a natural tendency toward order, organization, complexity, and wholeness. That these things are not, not, we don't have to impose those onto chaos through human intelligence, but they're already there waiting for our alliance to fully manifest. That's the shift of perception. And boy, that's getting very abstract. I hope it's uh, not too abstract for a biohacking. No, no, I... I am loving this. And it's so interesting. I was just thinking about how, because you're talking about how, you know, that agricultural system appeared essentially all these different places. And so there must have been like, it was going to happen. But the same book I mentioned earlier, The End of Craving that I was reading last night, he also talked about how the human adaptation to have lactase, the lactase gene for dairy appeared in four completely different civilizations across, you know, the world. And so it wasn't like just one place. So, so, so basically it ties into this idea that what you just said, I'm not articulating it well, but so question. So this new story that we would be going into, which sounds like it's, I don't know if it's a reversion to the past, but it's the way things were with a new understanding of it. So can we have that in an agricultural based society? Yeah. It doesn't require that we abandon all of technology, which would mean abandoning. I mean, how far back do you want to go? You know, should we stop using fire? Should we stop using stone tools? I think that that the development of technology, the cumulative development of technology, was, as I said, inevitable and and has a proper application. Like, what would technology look like if we really were devoted to life and beauty. I was uh, recently talking to Zach Bush. Oh, I've had him on the show. Yeah, he's he's amazing. And we were talking about 5G, you know, and he was like, I mean, he's fully cognizant of the dangers and harms of cell tower radiation. But he said, you know, someday we're going to use that infrastructure to beam healing frequencies onto the public. Because there are people who are using I don't know, like what's that pulsed electromagnetic EMF? Yeah, like like there are people who are investigating how to 
use these frequencies for, for healing. Like if we turned our attention to that, who knows? Like if we like, just think what would happen if we redirected all of the scientific brilliance that today is going toward weapons development and drug development onto the, what we call now alternative technologies, like toward the technologies of soil, regeneration, ecosystem restoration, human health, like all that right now, only a tiny, tiny fraction of our scientific talent goes towards anything good. What would happen if we said, what would happen if we, if that became our new, our new collective mission to make the world as beautiful as possible and human beings as healthy as possible with technology? Like what would we use the technologies that are today used for cell phone towers? And we, we turn those toward bodily and ecological healing. I mean, who knows what we, what we would come up with? It's not so much a matter of technology being good or bad. It's the intention behind it, the motivation from which it is developed. And when that changes, then everything changes very quickly. So what is driving the collective intention and motivation? Because like now I keep talking about like how I'm seeing things in my head, but like it feels like there's an energy flowing a certain way and it's directing how these things manifest in the world. So like how technology is being used, how we treat food, how we exist in relationship to each other in society. And like, it can go one way, which is like control and not beauty, reductionism, fragmentation. Like it was a stage that humanity was destined to go through. And we have narrated that as an ascent. That's why I titled the book, The Ascent of Humanity. It's kind of ironic though, but we narrated that as, as progress, as improvement and believed that our continued improvement, our destiny would be to bring all of reality under control, to domesticate everything, to impose order onto chaos, to, to conquer the wild, even in the body. And so this feed idea that, that if we know what's driving it, we'll be able to change it. Like even that, like that way of thinking of what's driving it, it's kind of Newtonian. You know, it's, it taps into this force-based causality where if something happens, it's because something is driving it. And if we could only dissect the machine down to its smallest reductionistic parts, then we'd be able to re-engineer it. And so, like, there's a lot of, you know, smart kind of systems guys out there who come up with the hack to change the system and to change society, making it a, a technical matter. But I think that that's actually secondary, that it's not that we don't need to change our systems, but they will only change when our consciousness is ready to change, when we come to the point of making a different choice. This is also true on the personal level. Like if I, if I say, you know, you're addicted to cake, you're eating cake every day, and you say, Charles, I really want to stop eating cake. What's driving my cake eating? We might come up with some interesting things. You know, we might talk about your, your childhood trauma, your dissociative behavior, your 
loneliness, that you're meeting with sweets. There might be all kinds of things. But at some point, if you're going to change, you make a choice to change. The conditions of the choice are important, but they're never, they never fully dictate. They, they never fully dictate the choice that you make. The universe is not deterministic, I guess, is what I really want to say here. And this is something that, that's changed a bit in my thinking over the years, where I used to think that the collapse of our current system would save us from ourselves, and we'd have to change. That, that the society built on separation would fall apart, and you know, we would then embark on reunion. But now I think like it could get worse and worse and worse and worse until, until forever, until we live on a completely dead planet, subsisting off precision fermentation factories and animal cell cultures and hydroponics vegetables, you know, grown in labs in bubble cities to protect us from a toxic atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera, like plugged into the metaverse. Like what's to stop that future from happening? We've moved towards it step by step for thousands of years. We can't rely on its failure to save us. And, and is, that, you know, is that even metaphysically valid? Are we victims of the world? We have choice here. So I guess the choice then starts in our, in our own lives. Like what, what way am I ready to be more in service to, to life, in my life. So this concept of choice is really perplexing and fascinating. And it's ironic because I'm going to use a scientific example for it, which is kind of the antithesis of the whole concept. But I don't remember which book it was in. It might have been a few different ones. But I was gathering up. You would drop in all of these different examples of, I guess, like randomness, in the world. So things like how photons can act randomly or how, I mean, you said the speed of light even changed at one point. Oh yeah. I mean, that like blew my mind or like um, something like xylitol randomly forming different crystallizations. Yeah. This is Rupert Sheldrake's stuff in one of his books. It's called science set free in the U S and in the UK, it was called the science delusion, but he gave, all these examples of the supposed constants of physics actually not being constant. And he also, he's the one who, who articulated the theory of morphogenesis, which is a different causal principle than Newtonian force-based causality. Morphogenesis says that, that any change that happens anywhere generates a field of change that allows the same change to happen more easily elsewhere. So the xylitol example was they were trying to make they were trying to make this make it crystallize so they could use it as a food additive in dry foods and they couldn't get it to crystallize anywhere in food labs all over the world but finally and they tried everything you know different pre- temperatures and pressures and catalysts and whatever but finally they were successfully able to do it in one lab like in New Zealand and as soon as they were successful labs started to be able to do it all over the place using almost any method, it could almost not stop it from happening. So it was as if it learned how to do it, or if the fact that it was done successfully in one place shifted reality 
so that now it just does that. And so like you can extend this causal principle to our personal choices. Like every time that you do something brave or compassionate or kind or generous, you generate a field of courage, compassion, kindness, or generosity. And other people across the world start making a similar choice because what you've done is declared what human nature is. That's another way to look at it. You've declared what human nature is through your own example. It is irrational to hope for a better world if the human nature that you demonstrate is incompatible with that better world. And that's where despair comes from. It comes from a disconnect between the choices you're making and the world you want to see. So changing your own choices, it, ha- it, it, it exerts a power beyond the comprehension of the modern mind through the causal principle of morphogenesis. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste, Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. 
unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That helps explain the other perspective I was trying to grasp in comparison to earlier talking about like this Newtonian force driving everything. Instead, this idea of things can just happen and they can extend from that energetically. Does this relate also to trust, like trusting other people and being trustworthy ourselves? Yeah. When we trust other people and it's authentic and not like you actually don't trust them, but you're going to deceive yourself into thinking that you do trust them and pretend like you trust them. Like that's actually quite a problem <laughs> and has gotten society into a lot of trouble by trusting authorities that we actually don't trust and shouldn't trust. So on a personal level, when, when you actually take the risk to trust somebody, you are holding them in a story of you are trustworthy and establishing a relationship of trust with the universe. It is not a guarantee that the other person will rise to the level of your trust, but it is at least an invitation for them to rise to the level of your trust. Whereas if you are untrusting and hostile and wary, then you don't create an invitation for anything else. Like if you're keeping your distance, like no one can get close. If you don't give someone the chance, if you don't make yourself vulnerable, then you'll never know that somebody is kind or is trustworthy. So, yeah, so trust, I mean, it's really though, trust actually cannot happen through effort. It's really about becoming honest with ourselves. Who do we actually trust and who do we not trust? And then living that even when history and and trauma might make it really scary to to act on your actual trust of a person and then also to acknowledge when you don't trust somebody like some people like sometimes it's easy like there are people occasionally who I run into that I just instantly trust with every fiber of my being no question whatsoever and there are some who even if they give every appearance of being trustworthy I just don't trust them same yeah. Yeah. And then there are those like, oh, I'm not sure. And maybe they earn my trust over time. This is again, like a similar to the yoga of eating, you know, the body knows. And if we're willing to receive that knowledge, just to be honest with ourselves, then we have a powerful guide to navigate life. Well, also related to this, and you gave this example again, in one of your essays or books and it really had me thinking and it still has me thinking and I'm not sure how I feel or what I think about it, but um, you're positing how like having a security system, for example, is reinforcing a narrative of not trusting or not being safe. And so for me, for example, I, I didn't have a security system historically and then I got broken into and then I was like, I'm all about the security systems. And so now I'm like, I don't know. How do I feel about security systems? So like that example, like how would one most live 
in a narrative of trust and feeling safe, like, can you do that and still have a security system? Yeah, I mean, it's the same, you know, are you getting the security system because there's actual danger and how much of it, you know, like, what are you actually scared of? And, and is the security system actually what's going to keep you safe? Or is it just making you feel better? It's like wearing a mask during COVID. I hope it's okay for me to bring up a controversial topic. I'm all about the controversy. Go for it. I mean, it made, it made people feel safer. It was like this magic talisman, this, this ceremonial headgear that you put on your head, put over your face, and it protects you from an evil spirit. Scientifically, it is quite questionable whether it does any good at all. But that's not the point of the mask. It's to, you know, it's a form of medical theater and that that reassures everybody that we're doing something about it. Very similar to some of these home security systems where, you know, it might stop like, you know, some random teenagers, but professional thieves, I think, probably can eat those things for lunch. So, so you know, I, I don't have like a generalizable principle of whether you as a standardized person should have a security system or not. It's the, I would just offer the same guidance as I do for, for all these other things. Like be honest with yourself about why you're getting it. Well, what's really interesting, just thinking about it more, I did get it after being broken into, I did feel safe from it. What's interesting is probably doesn't even have to be turned on. It just has to look like it's there. So it really is more of a, I mean, cause you just mentioned like the masks and rituals and all of that. And I think what's so interesting about the whole mask thing is like, it shouldn't be something controversial in my opinion <laughs> to talk about it either is or is not effective. And we can study that and learn from that. And it just became such a, like you said, like a religious thing almost. And I was fascinated in your essays talking about modern ritual and festivals. And could you talk a little bit about that? Like how we're seeing like this idea of like the festival and the rituals manifest today in society? Yeah, we, we think, you know, we like to think that we've transcended superstition and ritual and, and that, you know, rituals are like this kind of leftover from a previous age that don't really mean anything. They're not real, like the, the ritual of graduation, you know, or religious rituals. But now we do things for objective scientific reasons, not superstitious ones. But if you look at our behavior in the time of COVID, boy, it sure looks an awful lot like what we called primitive rituals. So in one of my essays, I, I, I kind of re-narrated what's going on. This is, I wrote this a year and a half ago or a year ago. And, and I said, like, imagine a society where all of a sudden a religious hysteria descends and the priests start telling people that there is an invisible spirit that can possess them and make them unclean and make them sick or even kill them. And any unclean person can transmit that spirit to somebody else and the spirit will possess the next person. And the only way to tell if you've been possessed is to do a body ritual where a magic wand is moistened with your body fluids and sent to a temple where a divination practice is performed that reveals whether you're possessed or not. And if you are possessed, 
then you have to stay in isolation lest the unclean spirit jump to somebody else. And, and to guard against possession, you have to perform ritual ablutions like hand washings and don ceremonial headgear. And, and, and the priests put these markings on the ground and made sure that everybody stood on those markings and didn't get any closer to each other than that. Like, this sounds pretty superstitious, doesn't it? But it maps directly on, you know, the, the magic wand is the, is the, you know, PCR test swab, you know, the, the temple that it gets sent to is the testing center. The, the divination procedure is the, is the PCR test that, you know, the, like it all makes sense to us for scientific reasons, but it's close conformity to other rituals really kind of makes me suspect that there's a lot more going on here than science and and that we are in the midst of or have recently emerged from at this point a religious hysteria that that you know only ends i mean this is another part of it then the priests develop a special potion that will protect you from possession forever when it's introduced into your body through a blood ceremony penetrating your skin and injecting the potion into your blood. I mean, that's pretty ritualistic too. And then you're magically protected. Yeah, you know, I wrote about this, especially in the context of the idea that, that anyone who refuses these rituals and taboos becomes illegitimate as a member of society and therefore is offering themselves as a scapegoat to be blamed. And this, we saw this starting to happen too, where, where the, you know, anti-maskers as they were called the anti-vaxxers is, I mean, these are pejorative terms were blamed for the continuation of the crisis. And, and so, yeah, this, this was an element of, and people were afraid to speak up. This was why I called this mob morality and very similar to Matthias Desmet's ideas of a mass formation, where even if, you disagree with the prevailing rituals and taboos, you dare not say anything. You dare not break ranks because if you do, then you immediately get identified as a potential scapegoat, as you, you, you get ostracized, you get, I mean, in, in our time, censored, canceled, fired, locked down. You know, you can't, go to public events. A lot of us have experienced this, like ostracism from all kinds of things, informal and formal. Like we couldn't go to the, you know, nutcracker suite. You know, we couldn't go to the to concerts. We couldn't go to the library. We couldn't do all kinds of things. And and so anyway, so if you speak out, then it's like this basic human instinct to identify who's on the in, who's on the outs, who is the weird kid, who's the popular kid, who has cooties, who is clean, who you should distance yourself from. This is the same dynamic as in, in witch hunts and pogroms, where if you were associated with a witch or even failed to enthusiastically participate in the witch burning, then you were suspect too. So people were, and still are, afraid to speak their mind, which creates an illusion of unanimity especially in the medical profession where there's like privately, there's a lot of doctors and nurses who have severe reservations and, and are seeing a lot of harm 
but they're afraid to speak out because they're going to lose their license or just be ostracized from their profession. So they don't speak out. And because nobody's speaking out, it creates an illusion of unanimity. Gosh, no one else is speaking out. Maybe I'm the only one seeing this. Because if adverse events and, and, and vaccine harm were rampant, then everybody would be talking about it, but they're not. So maybe I'm just not, you know, maybe I'm just seeing some anomalies here. And, and so they keep silent, silent and contribute to the illusion. And, and that's why it, I mean, that's why I spoke out, you know, to, to break, to do my part anyway, in breaking the silence and breaking the illusion of normalcy. So it's, yeah, there is a link between that and religion and, and ritual. It's interesting that you could have a situation with an audience listening to a speaker saying something. And so the speaker is the only person talking. And in that situation, I don't think you would assume everybody agrees with the speaker. And yet when it appears in like real life, like you just spoke about where there's, you know, only a few actual voices saying things and then everybody else is just, if they're silent, we do magically assume everybody is agreeing. And I guess that's just because we're not objecting compared to like an audience situation. Yeah. Yeah. Like an, uh, a speaker speaking to an audience is very different than a mob, than a mob forming. Although it could turn into a mob, but, but usually for a mob to form, there have to be some ringleaders egging everybody on and saying, you know, burn the witch or, you know, kill the Jews or whatever, lynch the, Lynch that guy, you know, and and then there'll be a, a portion of people who enthusiastically go along with that, loudly and enthusiastically concur. And then there'll be a third class of people who pretty much just assume that if everybody's doing it, it must be right. And so they'll go along with it, too. You know, maybe she really was with the devil. And so we need to burn her. They just, you know, basically trust the the, the, the crowd. Then there's a fourth category who have doubts. They're like, gosh, I don't think she's a witch. I don't really believe in witches, but I don't know. Everybody can't be wrong. And maybe, I don't know, am I really so sure? And we don't want rich, rich witchcraft to run rampant. And besides, even if I have reservations, it's not safe to speak out. So I better pretend to go along so they don't accuse me of being a witch next. So there's like that kind of fourth class. And then there's the fifth class who actually speak out and often end up getting lynched, like literally or figuratively. In the case of the last couple of years, it's mostly been figuratively. You know, I mean, it happened to me, you know, I got deplatformed and canceled from all kinds of things. And, and, and people wrote to events that I was on the faculty of and said, if Charles Eisenstein is going to be on there, you know, I'm withdrawing because I can't be associated with him. You know, that's like the social media version of like cancellation, you know, is is the modern version of the more brutal physical removal from society. So anyway, for, for this to happen, the first class, like the ringleaders and the enthusiastic participants could be a tiny minority. But because the third and the fourth group go along with them, it looks like an overwhelming majority. And in the case of COVID stuff, like it was actually, I think, a majority, at least initially. You know, most, most people 
basically trusted the ringleaders, i.e. the health authorities at the beginning. Now that's no longer the case. You know, even if people profess to trust the science and trust Fauci and so forth, like how many people are actually vaccinating their two-year-olds? Very few. How many people are getting their fourth boosters, you know? Like they say they believe, but people don't believe anymore. This, this thing's over. I had an experience the other day and I, I watched myself have this experience and I was so fascinated by, by how I interacted with the world, which was that I came back to my apartment and the situation is, it's like streets around the apartment. So it's not like roads. That's not making sense. It's very casual. Like you can, there's parking on both sides and you could really technically park either direction and it wouldn't really, um, it goes against the loss of traffic, but it wouldn't be a quote, a big deal. So I came back to my apartment and all of the cars on parallel parking were parked the wrong direction. And there was one spot left and I knew they were all parked the wrong direction. And I was like, do I park the right direction or do I park the wrong direction? And I parked the wrong direction because they all were going that way. And I was like, this is so fascinating. Just like how much we will go with the flow of other people. And it was such a silly thing. Like It probably looked like a conspiracy, you know, like everybody had gotten together. But sometimes things just happen and, and, and people just kind of go, they, they, like they sense into what you're supposed to do. Like the media does this all the time, you know, like I don't think that we I don't, like, OK, I do think that that the intelligence agencies have, you know, operatives implanted in the media. OK, but even if they didn't, the media just like just like, you know, the fourth grade class that figures out who's the weird kid and what to say and what's going to be popular and what isn't and what clothes to wear like the media does that with their news reporting. They know what opinions are going get, to get, get them promoted and what are going to get them in trouble. And they just kind of self-organize around propaganda, around ideologies and generate propaganda, just like everybody parking on the wrong side of the street. Like no one even has to tell them to do it. They just have this instinct that I, that I spoke of before, the instinct of getting on the right side of the mob, you know? And, and that really complicates things when we try to, when we ask, okay, how can we stop this from happening again? The, the initial impulse would be to find the ringleaders and round them up and send them to prison, you know, like prosecute the corrupt officials and pharma executives who, who distorted the science and, and made fake studies and manipulated the data and, and gave bad advice, like, let's get rid of those people, right? Problem solved. But that doesn't address the deeper problem of how we so easily acquiesce to it and, and are so vulnerable to these mob dynamics. If we don't heal on that level, then whether it's the next pandemic or some other threat to society, threat to the world, we're going to fall right back into lockstep. And it's always the same. Present the public with a threat that requires the sacrifice of civil liberties and freedoms and, and also has an internal enemy that mirrors the external, the internal enemy being the traitors, the heretics. So we have to cleanse society of them, crack down on them. It's always the same pattern, you know? And, and that's what I'm most interested in 
changing beyond just, you know, pandemic policy. The requirement for that change, is it what we were talking earlier, where it's just everybody chooses a different way? I mean, it does actually get back to what we were talking about earlier, like the the trust in the wisdom of the body, the habits of like, who do I trust and who don't I trust and why? And do I actually trust the person that I'm, you know, giving my trust to? And it's a reclamation of of that kind of sovereignty, actually, which is not only an individual function, it also, it's sovereignty in relationship to people we trust, like a community. But we've kind of abdicated that and handed it over to authorities who we don't know and should not trust and don't actually trust. So it's yeah, it's a kind of a, that, and that's why I, I titled the book The Coronation, which is an initiation into sovereignty. And I think that is the opportunity before us right now. This is just a very practical question. It's something I've been struggling with a lot, and I'm really curious your thoughts on it. So I, I have some Facebook groups around 15,000 members. The only rules we really have in the group are to be open-minded, quote, be open-minded, although now I'm thinking about how everybody thinks they're open-minded, and be kind. My audience for this show and just in general is just so kind and empathetic and open-minded and really wonderful. And But there have been some instances in the group where people are not open-minded, like not open to whatever guest I brought on and then not open to phrasing things as their opinion. And I've struggled so, so hard with, because it's been very rare the few times that it's happened, but I've struggled with, like, am I censoring if I remove their posts because they're not following this rule of, you know, phrasing things as their opinion or being open-minded, or if they're saying something that doesn't come off as kind, is that the one rule I can have or should everything just go? Well, you can do whatever you want, Melanie. This is true. What do you think I should do, though? <laughs> we run an online community with several thousand members. And after some evolution, what we came to is, I mean, the whole community, the founding principle is reverence to interact with the knowledge that the person you are speaking to is a divine being. And at some point, like, we just made it some rules and said, hey, if you like call people names, if you, you know, make like personal accusations, if like we made a list of rules and said, we're, you're just going to be removed. And yeah, you're right. It isn't democratic. This is the, the space we're creating. And, you know, some people left, but a lot of people were so grateful to like have a, an environment that insists on decent behavior. Okay. That's very helpful. I don't know why I struggle with this so much. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. I literally have been excited about this potential conversation ever since I read, like I said, The Yoke of Eating forever ago. And then thank you for letting me narrate that book. And thank you for coming on and all the work that you're doing. We'll put links in the show notes to all of the books. Very excited for you. Are you, You're launching the coronation on July 28th. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's already available now, but yeah. So you've had the essays published, but it is available now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They somehow got out early. But I'm having a launch event with Zach Bush. Oh, gosh, I got to announce that. Damn. 
Um, yeah, um, I'm having a launch, launch event with him on the 28th, which is really soon. Oh, exciting. Like a social media thing? Yeah, I'm going to be on his Instagram live. I will have to check that out and I'll share it with my audience as well. Do you have any other, I know you just, the, the coronation is the collection of essays. Oh, which by the way, I just want to say something I really like about it is how you say what you were thinking for each essay. And then it's kind of like following the evolution of your thoughts surrounding the pandemic. It's just, it's a very, it's very enlightening and cool read. Yeah. I added intros to each essay and, and a prologue and epilogue. Yeah. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Do you have any other books in the work? Do you, do you, or do you have like a million books in the works all the time? I don't know. I'm not sure if I want to write more books. Yeah. I don't know. It's like sometimes I feel the limitations of the kind of writing I've been doing. Yeah. I might, might, uh, take a little little time off and evaluate what I want to do with the rest of my life. Awesome. Well, I will be eagerly anticipating and watching where that journey goes. And thank you again, because you've helped so many people, which is perfect. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I have four children, four sons. And, you know, the youngest now is nine this is kind of my last go at it. And I feel really grateful that I know now how precious each of these moments is. Mm. With the youngest? Yeah. Each moment of childhood, you know, because they grow up and, and they're not children anymore. They never, they're never eight again. They're never nine again. It's just such a miracle to, to witness the development of a human being like that, you know. So I'm really grateful I got to do that. Well, I love that. That's that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Charles. This has been so incredible. Hopefully we can talk again in the future and just thank you for all that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you, Melanie. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.